0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, Episode 37, The Army of the Strategikon. In the last episode, we saw the Emperor Maurice killed and overthrown by the Centurion Focus in the year 602. Today we pause the narrative and begin a series of episodes exploring the 6th century Byzantine world in more depth. My aim is to take a break at the end of every century to survey what has changed about life within the Empire and amongst its neighbours, as well as answering any questions that you may have about the period. These end-of-century surveys will vary in length depending on how much there is to cover and whether there are any particularly interesting topics which we weren't able to get to during the narrative episodes. In today's podcast, we take a closer look at the Roman army. Across the 6th century, particularly thanks to Procopius, we have seen soldiers up close and personal on many occasions. However, during our last examination of the armed forces back in episode 13, I was only able to give a cursory summary of their organisation and composition. Now, however, we have reached the date of the compilation of a Byzantine army manual known to us as the Strategikon. Here we have the words of a 6th century soldier to guide us as we look at the state of the army. We have no surviving military manuals equivalent to the strategicon from the period covered by the history of Rome. There were plenty of texts written on military matters, but many were put together by academics rather than soldiers. They often betray their author with references to the long distant past and contain few practical tips for the day-to-day operations of an army listener N.V. specifically asked what other works were available, and there are so many that it would be a waste of time to list them all here. You can find them all, though, in Edward Lutwack's excellent book, The Grand Strategy of the Byzantine Empire. All of this is to say that the strategicon is a very different animal. It is written by a soldier for soldiers, The language used is simple and clear, with no flowery classicism or references to ancient texts. It was written by someone who had extensive knowledge of Byzantine military campaigns, of training, of logistics, of battlefield tactics, and of the empire's enemies. In short, the strategicon is so helpful and so relevant for a general that it was plagiarized by practically every other field manual that Byzantine authors would write. And there are plenty more to come in later centuries. Back in episode 13, I talked about the general operating procedure of the army at the beginning of the 6th century. The general aim of Byzantine strategy then was to avoid attritional combat. In other words, avoid battles that would lead to heavy casualties. In the days of the Republic and early Empire, the army's goal was to meet their enemy head-on in a pitched battle. The legendary discipline of the Roman legions would wear down an enemy's resistance. They would eventually flee and be cut down and annihilated. The people who the defeated represented would then make peace with Rome. The aim of that earlier Roman army was to encourage attritional combat – because despite the fact that many Roman men would be killed in a head-to-head infantry slugfest, the destruction of your enemy would end the conflict. This posture only worked when two factors were in Rome's favour. First, that Italian and then wider European demographics were strong enough to provide new men for the army, and second, that beyond the enemy you just crushed was no other dangerous kingdom. The Roman Empire was founded on these twin realities, taking the legions all the way from the Atlantic to the Euphrates. However, since Augustus set the boundaries of the Empire, the military posture had been changing. It no longer mattered who the Romans annihilated, another people would take their place on the borders, looking to gain access to the Empire's wealth. And those enemies were getting stronger every year because centuries of contact with the Romans had improved everybody's knowledge, weaponry, and organization. The empire's demographics, too, began to slowly suffer. History of Rome listeners should be familiar with this story. One of the turning points in the development of the new military psychology was the crisis of the 3rd century, when the emperor Gallienus created a mobile cavalry division. Then, during the 5th century, the encounter with Attila's Huns forced another change on the Romans when they saw the effectiveness of a skilled force of horse archers. A lot of listeners' questions about the 6th century focused on the changing identity of the Roman Empire now that it only contains its eastern half. Hopefully you can see from this brief sketch that the change in attitude of the army from an aggressive attritional force toward a defensive, non-attritional one took place over a number of centuries. It was no Byzantine innovation to design an army that would avoid pitched battles wherever it could. It was a political, financial, and military necessity in response to the ever-changing cast of enemies beyond the empire's borders. What the Strategicon does that is so helpful to historians is enshrine that attitude in writing and therefore help us imagine the posture of the military across the last couple of centuries. For example, the author of the Strategicon puts the case for avoiding attritional combat like this. Warfare is like hunting. Wild animals are taken by scouting, by nets by lying in wait, by stalking, by circling around, and by other such stratagems rather than by sheer force. The author adds, It is ridiculous to try to gain a victory which is so costly and brings only empty glory. This is certainly a change in attitude from the days when men like Julius Caesar thought that glory was the surest route to political success. For the Byzantines, a defensive military posture was essential if they were going to keep all their territory. We saw that when Justinian was on the offensive in Italy, the Persians could march into Syria and sack everything in sight. Or, when Tiberius transferred troops to the east, the Slavs and Avars waltzed around the Balkans with no reprisal. It was considered essential, therefore, not to lose 10,000 men in some huge battle that might temporarily push the Persians back, because what if the Avars invade tomorrow, and 10,000 men are desperately needed in the West? To take this non-attritional attitude to its logical extent, the Strategicon adds several other pieces of advice. When a populous city is taken... It is important to leave the gates open so that the inhabitants may escape and not be driven to utter desperation. The same holds when an enemy's fortified camp is taken. Or, When an enemy is surrounded, it is well to leave a gap in our lines to give them an opportunity to flee. These statements don't exactly sound like our picture of ancient warfare with sacking and slaughter. But if you want to limit your own casualties as much as possible, then it makes sense not to trap your opponent when they will be forced to fight to the death. We saw an example of this when Khosrow sacked Antioch. He left one of the gates of the city unguarded so that the residents could leave. But taking this a step further, the advice in the strategicon actually implies that you should limit casualties on both sides i.e. try not to weaken your enemy too much. Now, this is certainly not a universal instruction, but it's a principle that will become increasingly important in later Byzantine history. After all, there are now so many tribes beyond the Danube that to destroy one will only open a gap for a new group to move in and take up their place. Why not just clip the ear of the devil you know, rather than risk that the people beyond them will be even worse? A recent example of this was, of course, the arrival of the Avars. Before them, the Gepids and the Lombards had been fairly innocuous neighbours who the Empire could play off against one another. When the Gepids were destroyed, the Avars proved to be far more dangerous. The author of the strategicon sums it up simply. A wise commander will not engage the enemy in pitched battle unless a truly exceptional opportunity or advantage presents itself. More than that, though, the Strategicon is filled with advice on how best to defeat your enemy without fighting him. Always spread rumours that you're planning one thing and then do something else. If you catch an enemy spy but your army is in good shape, then let him go. Greet enemy ambassadors very warmly so that their own people may suspect that they are on the take. Always use your enemy's strengths against them, and always hit them on the flanks or the rear if possible, because it's so much more effective than a frontal assault. More than just protecting your soldiers as if they were numbers on a balance sheet, the strategicon makes it clear that these are highly skilled professional men who will be hard to replace. The Byzantines didn't consider a soldier ready for war if he had only had one year's training. As we shall see in a moment, the complexity of training now meant that if those 10,000 soldiers perished tomorrow, they couldn't be replaced for two years. And really, if they were men with combat experience, then add a few more to that. So let's take a look at the training which the strategicon talks about and the kind of soldiers the Byzantines were instructing. The manual begins with the training of the individual soldier. This is the building block of any organized army. Many of the empire's enemies would simply draft men when war was imminent or let their skills atrophy between campaigns. The author therefore encourages his general to train men properly and make sure they maintain their skills. Byzantine soldiers were initially trained in every skill they might need This meant shooting with arrows, riding a horse, and fighting on foot. Once this was mastered, men would begin to specialise. The most specialised troops were, of course, cavalry. As I mentioned back in episode 13, the Byzantines now trained men to fight as the horse archers of the steppes did. This meant learning how to shoot a bow and arrow on horseback, to then be able to switch to a short lance for charging and to be able to fight with a sword in close combat. With month upon month of training, men would learn to ride shooting arrows in front of them, then to each side, and finally to turn fully around in the saddle and fire directly behind them. Sounds difficult, doesn't it? But it gets better. The rider would then have to practice putting the bow into a case on the side of his horse before switching to his lance, and then put the lance back, Retrieve the bow and begin shooting again. All of this while the horse is galloping. And what's more, the rate of fire for a mounted bowman had to be quick. The Strategicon says explicitly even when the arrow is well aimed, firing slowly is useless. Faced with volleys of arrows from horse archers, most enemy units would either charge you or run away. Either way, a rapid rate of fire was the only way to succeed. These highly trained cavalrymen would then form units, who at this stage attempted to mirror the tactics of the Huns. A cavalry detachment charges toward the enemy so that they will gather in a dense formation for protection. The cavalry then stop short and pepper the enemy with arrow fire until they either break and run or are weak enough to actually be charged and hacked down. There were other types of cavalry available, and not all units would have mounted bowmen in them, and although there would always be more infantry than cavalry available in a field army, it was now accepted that the cavalry were the primary combat arm. This makes perfect sense in a force aiming to avoid attrition, because the cavalry are the ones who can pull off ambushes, retreats, and harrying attacks without leaving their supply lines too far behind. Infantry remained a key component of the army, of course. Heavy infantry were trained to fight in close combat with shield, sword, spear, and mace. Light infantry would learn how to shoot a bow, use a sling, and fight with javelin and shield. The most important role for the infantry, now that attrition was off the table, was to seize and hold ground. Much attention was paid to how the infantry could successfully stand fast against cavalry charges. This would often involve using lances or spears to protect themselves, as Narsi's army did against the Goths at the Battle of Galorum. Aside from this basic training, each unit would learn specific battlefield tactics. Or at least they should. Part of the aim of the author of the Strategicon is to arm his commanders with tactics that might be forgotten if they were not passed on. For example, you might have a front rank of heavy infantry, with light infantry behind them, to fire missiles from the safety of a shield wall. Hours of training were needed to switch the depth, length and style of formation to combat different enemy movements, and the manual has many diagrams explaining various manoeuvres. The key for the Romans to maintain their military superiority was to employ sophisticated unit tactics that would create a cohesive army movement. The enemy might be stronger, quicker, or deadlier, but if they didn't move as one, they could be defeated. So what did these soldiers look like? According to the strategicon, The front ranks of infantry would need to be protected against missiles with armoured coats and shields. They also wore helmets with cheek plates and greaves of iron or wood to protect their legs below the knees. The cavalry would wear hooded coats of sewn-on scale armour or chainmail, along with helmets, iron breastplates and armour for their horses. With chain mail mentioned, I'm sure your mind is trying to imagine an army that looks more like our image of medieval knights than the old red cloaks and rectangular scutum of the Roman Republic. Listener J asks this question specifically, and wondered whether there was a point when the army ceased to look like Roman soldiers as we've known them. And as I said... Uh, By as we've known them, I'm assuming we all have an image of a Roman soldier uh, from TV shows, films and museums with a red cloak, red toga, red plume on the helmet, red shield, sandals, right? As I'm sure you can imagine, we don't know exactly what a Roman army looked like at any one time. There would have been a tremendous amount of variation across time and place. That classic image of the Roman soldier probably has him bare-armed and legged because he's fighting in the hot Italian summer. However, once Roman troops reached the Rhine and Danube in the first century, the colder weather would have immediately necessitated a shift to long-sleeved tunics, trousers, socks, and laced boots. The imperial helmet with distinctive plumage and cheek plates was often replaced with the cheaper and duller-looking ridge helmets – And, of course, when not in battle, many soldiers just wore a cap, such as the ones being sported by Diocletian and his fellow Tetrarchs on the corner of the Basilica di San Marco in Venice. By the Byzantine period, many infantrymen had taken up circular shields, as the German tribes used, And we do have a surviving document which shows dozens of colourful patterns representing different unit emblems, implying that a Roman field army would have been a cacophony of colour, rather than a large mass of red. I am no historian, let alone one of Roman army uniforms, so I can't tell you when the Roman army ceased to wear red or no longer looked how it is in our imagination. But it seems likely that it never was as uniform as we think it was, and that while Augustus was still emperor, troops were already adapting quickly to new environments by altering what they wore. I have put some pictures up at thehistoryofbyzantium.com and even more on Facebook to show you what Byzantine armies of this period may have looked like. But take it all with a pinch of salt, as they are merely educated guesses based largely on written descriptions. By our period, though, certainly men in chainmail would no longer look like a Roman army of old. But make no mistake, they considered themselves part of the Roman army, and so did their opponents. I will be discussing deeper identity issues in the next few podcasts. A related question comes from listener G.G., G who asks whether anything resembling a standard-issue kit existed for a soldier in the 6th century. The rough answer to that is yes. Since Diocletian's reforms, the army had been supplied by imperial arms factories, and so men from different units were expected to buy the kit they needed from the state. Commanders would then inspect their men and make sure they had the right gear and kept it to an acceptable standard. However, without conveyor belts, absolutely uniform standards were impossible, and private industry did exist, so there would have been plenty of variety amongst men's kit, even if they all knew there were many standard items they were expected to have. The focus of the strategicon is on the mounted archers, whose equipment gets a lot of attention. The composite reflex bow adopted from the Huns needed to be looked after if it was going to function properly. The bows were held together by animal bone glues and powered by dried tendons and therefore it had to be protected from the rain by special cases covered in water-resistant leather. An extra-large cloak was recommended along with body armor to protect the bow from rain or dew. Spare strings had to be carried in saddlebags and quivers should have rain covers as well. Interestingly each bow should be made specifically for the man who wielded it, and should be on the weaker side, i.e. very easy to pull back and fire. The reasoning is simple. If you're in the middle of battle, firing as quickly as you can, you'll become tired very quickly, and you don't want to be struggling to release another volley. Listener GG also asks whether looting would lead some soldiers to be richer than others, and therefore lead them to obtain higher quality arms than other men in their unit. I'm sure this did happen, but probably not to the extent that one man had a diamond-encrusted sword and gold helmet. I suspect spoils from looting had to be divided up somewhat it would have to be carried back to, say, Constantinople by pack animals that were communally used, so it was probably hard to keep particular items in your possession. Richer soldiers invested their spoils in other things anyway, like slaves and servants or property. Gigi goes further still, though, and asks whether all these differently kitted soldiers with different ethnic backgrounds, not to mention the Federate foreign troops would have known who was who in the chaos of battle. It's a good question, and one that the strategicon does answer, at least incidentally. First, the author does warn the commander to send away federate troops before a battle if they are from the same race as the enemy you're about to fight. Federate troops, as you know, are foreign troops hired to work alongside your native legionaries. They were an ever-present part of imperial military planning because they were much cheaper to pay than regular soldiers. This is because they didn't receive the same medical care or well-built barracks or retirement allowances. So aside from that obvious problem, how does one keep this multi-ethnic, multilingual army together in the heat of battle? The answer comes from a passage where the strategicon lists the sequence of commands given before battle is joined. These commands were actually given in Latin, despite the absence of many native Latin speakers in the army of the 6th century. Why Latin? Because they were the same commands that had been used for centuries. Why change them when every new soldier can quickly learn what the commands mean, and if he is transferred thousands of miles across the empire to another army, he will still understand what to do when battle begins. And the reason these commands are important are they help troops deal with the high levels of anxiety that accompany the approach of the enemy. Remember that many soldiers would spend years at their watchpost or city barracks never actually seeing a pitched battle. Once they did, with the enemy marching across a field toward them, panic could easily grip. So by maintaining a formal sequence of orders, the commanders would try to help their men overcome those last few minutes of tension and make it clear what was expected of them. As the enemy gets closer, the orders begin. Silentium! Silence. Mandata captate! Understand your orders. Non vos turbatis. Do not be anxious. Ordinem servate. Maintain your position. Bando sequute. Follow your unit's standard. Nemo demit bandum et inimico sec. Do not outrun the standard to pursue the enemy. As their troops get within range of your archers, the order is, Parati! Be ready. Then an officer shouts, Adjuta! Help us. And in unison, the army would shout loudly and clearly, Deus! O God! At that moment, the bowmen are to release the first volley of arrows, and the heavy infantry are to advance in close order, Shield touching shield across the front rank. I think that last line is meant to conjure a similar feeling of togetherness and adrenaline as when Leonidas asks his Spartans what they do for a living in the movie 300. But it's pretty moving to imagine the last words men said before battle were, Help us, O God. So hopefully that answers the question. It was the unit standard that men followed, and they were under orders not to outrun it and stay in formation. The military standards of each army were blessed before battle, and sometimes the symbol of the labarum was carried into battle too. So men should be able to quickly identify their unit if they fell out of step. And obviously in most cases you would be facing an enemy dressed distinctively enough that you wouldn't hack any of your own men down. But it's a very good question to ponder when the large-scale roman civil wars were taking place in addition to the unit standard there would also be two heralds one trumpeter and one drummer who would help keep you together just before and during battle a regiment at this point would consist of about 500 men and include the commander his deputy a chief of staff a chief clerk a drill sergeant two quartermasters, a surgeon, one cape-bearer for the commander, five senior officers, 150 junior officers, and 350 common soldiers. The five senior officers were equivalent to the old distinction of centurion and were now known as hecatontarchs in Greek. So when I said that phokas was a centurion, I really meant a hecatontarch, he would have been one of the seven most important men in his regiment, and therefore top 14 of his legion, which at this point comprised about a 1,000 men. Five legions made a miros, or division, putting focus amongst the top 70 ranked men there, and once three miros formed together, you had a field army. So when the rebellion against Maurice took place, Phocas would have been one of the 200 most important men on hand. If we assume that some senior officers refused to rebel against their emperor, then it becomes easier to see how a relatively junior officer was able to assume command of the whole army. As we saw with the uniforms and armour of soldiers, it can be difficult to trace specific changes within the army that happened during the 6th century. The most obvious ones have already been covered in the narrative, like Justinian's wars or Tiberius's recruitment of a new army of federates. One innovation that we do know was new was the arrival of the stirrup. The Byzantines certainly believed that this came from the Avars, though its true inventor is unknown, but the strategicon says that two iron stairs are now to be attached to the saddle which should be handy with all those crazy arrow shots the rider needs to pull off. That's nearly all for today's episode. We aren't done with the Strategicon by any means. It's one of the most important documents for this period in helping us understand the Byzantines and what they knew. As I explained at the website and on Facebook, finding time to research these episodes and answer all your questions has been harder than I'd thought. So I won't be saying in two weeks' time today. I'm just going to go away and do the work and write the episodes and release them when they're ready. So there might be a three or four week pause, but I suspect that once I've had time to do some serious reading, the episodes will come fairly quickly. So hopefully it's a case of a few weeks off and then an episode a week or more until the narrative moves forward again. I'm so grateful to all of you for your support and patience during this project. And, of course, Mike Duncan is back at his microphone, which should help ease the pain. One more thing before we go, though. Who wrote the strategicon? Modern historians estimate that it was written between 592 and 610. And although the author claims to have only limited combat experience, he is clearly a highly competent military officer. Traditionally, the manual was attributed to Maurice, And why not? He was the senior general in the empire before ascending to the top job, and thus spent most of his life dealing with military matters. However, it would be understandable if Maurice himself was too busy to pen such a work, with some historians speculating that his brother Peter was the actual author, or perhaps some other member of the court. We will never know for sure, but it's entirely plausible to me that Maurice could have been involved. Whether ordering the compilation, sponsoring it, or simply approving the project, as a sensible guide for any general to possess. This does mean that the time for questions is over. You will have another chance to ask anything you like in a hundred years' time. Until the next episode, you can join the Facebook page to stay in touch or comment at thehistoryofbyzantium.com.